Welcome to House Calls, where we have the great privilege of having conversations with senior bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I also co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of this dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we start a new two-part series on the future of hospitals in post-COVID America. In our first article, we'll be looking at the likely market responses to COVID-accelerated disruption. To cover that daunting topic, I'll be talking with my two co-authors on the article, Karsten Veit and Jim Maloney. Karsten and Jim are managing directors at Kane Brothers and co-heads of the firm's health systems M&A practice. Uh, they're both great friends and frequent collaborators with us on thought leadership. So I can say without reservation, this is going to be an absolutely fascinating discussion. Karsten, uh, Jim, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Thank you, Dave. Morning, Dave. Let's get into it. Some people would call COVID a black swan, uh, meaning an unpredictable, unforeseeable high impact event. I'm not sure that's really the case because we should have been able to predict that a global pandemic could happen and the industry should have been prepared to respond, but but clearly it wasn't. Uh, and as a result, COVID has hit both society at large and hospitals suddenly and hard. So let's talk first about the impact of COVID and then we can dive into kind of what hospitals were con confronting already before COVID happened. So what's happened to hospitals in terms of the, the two volume shocks, first the influx of, of COVID patients, and then the elimination for a while and continuing uh, slow uh, recovery of elective surgeries, and then what the government's been doing to try to blunt that negative financial impact. Karsten, Jim, would you want to take this one first? Sure. Uh, this is Karsten. I will take this. So let's talk a little bit about the volume shock. What's what's actually interesting in terms of the volume of COVID patients, notwithstanding sort of what's happening you know, most recently in Florida, Texas, Arizona, and so forth, is other than a few markets like New York, uh, most of our hospital clients essentially emptied their, their hospitals in anticipation of the surge of, uh, of COVID patients. That surge never came, so they took you know massive uh, hits to their financial uh, position because they were generating essentially no or very limited uh, revenues. While at the same time they were ramping up with high cost purchasing PPEs, uh, uh, ventilators, and, and and so forth. So the volume shock was first emptying the hospitals, then essentially seeing no COVID uh, patients other than a few uh, markets. What we're seeing from most of our hospital clients today is that the volumes have not picked up nearly to the levels that they were pre-COVID. And so we're seeing a significant negative financial impact. So if a hospital is generating 10 or 15 or even 20% less volume than it was pre-COVID, that has a direct impact on their bottom line. So most of our hospital clients are either you know at break-even or, or many still in an operating loss uh, loss position. So that's been a significant challenge. You know, you would think with the pent up demand that instead of 
volume coming back slowly, we'd actually be 125 or even 100%, 150% of pre-COVID volume. But it's more like 75%. Any sense as to why the patients haven't been coming back? My sense is it's a combination of things. So, you know, one is that those patients where it's truly elective, that's certainly an, an impact. The other piece, which may be you know, the most significant, is uh, even those health systems that are seeing pickup in volumes on electives and so forth, uh, their ERs uh, remain at, at significantly lower volumes. So that the traditional, let's call front door to the hospital, is seeing a, a substantial reduction in, uh, in patients coming into these ERs. I'd say most of our hospital clients have seen the outpatient uh, ambulatory surgery centers and so forth volumes coming back uh, often sort of more than they were pre-COVID. So, you know, 105, 110% of, of volume. But you know, at the end of the day, hospitals survive based on their ability to, to fill those inpatient beds. If you look at kind of the, the supply chain of the healthcare model, right? The first step usually is a visit to primary care physician and then a referral to a specialist and then some procedure. And like ED, I think we're still seeing a very different utilization of the first step in that, in that chain at primary care, right? The primary care offices are still doing a lot of visits virtually. So the kind of things that would give rise to the identification of uh, a medical condition or the movement of that medical condition through the higher acuity specialist chain is just not functioning at the same pace that it normally does. You know, as Carson said, we're working with a couple um, orthopedic uh, specialty hospitals and their volumes are at or north of 100% of, of budget right now because they're sort of unwinding backlog that had been previously diagnosed. The other thing that I think is relevant is our kind of stay-at-home strategy that was used throughout the country resulted in a sharp drop in the transmission of flus and many other mm. illnesses. The patients that have comorbidities didn't get as sick, and so it didn't lead to that cascading of other medical events. I'm wondering about the extent to which demand patterns among patients might be changing. We worked really closely with um, group health when they did their combination with Kaiser several years ago. And one of the things that was kind of interesting about that is that um, prior to surgery, Group Health provides a DVD that explains the risks and the rehab. And after looking at that video, something like 30% of patients determined that they don't want to get the surgery. Now, that is not a operating process that most orthopedic surgical groups employ. But I think the truth is that there are medical procedures that have a spectrum of benefits and cost, and I think that we could see a shifting in, the, in that trade-off, which could lead to fewer procedures being done for medical conditions that are sort of on the, in the gray zone. When we uh, speak to our large multi-specialty group practices, you know, that have moved signif significant amount of care to telemedicine and into their urgent care centers and, and so forth, they were motivated to do that, you know, sort of pre-COVID. This really has just accelerated or created a catalyst and I think ultimately sort of proven out that, uh, you know, more or less costly venues for care uh, provide 
you know, very good care to uh, to these patients. And I think hospitals are, are certainly seeing that uh, as well. And those hospitals that were sort of on a value path, they've certainly seen that accelerate pretty significantly in, in their markets. All of that care is less costly care, which translates to, you know, lower revenue to somebody, right? Uh, most typically our, uh, our hospital clients. So pretty quickly, we get into the value-based discussion and the trend that was well underway. Uh, and COVID certainly has uh, some degree accelerated that. Yeah, that's a really great transition uh, to the next question. The metaphor we use uh, to set this article up is is the gray rhino, and that comes from the title of Michelle Wooker's 2016 book, and she contrasts gray rhinos with with black swans, and I think most people are familiar with with black swans, uh, high impact, low probability events um, that really have a huge impact on the world at large, economic, uh, social, so on. By contrast, a gray rhino is a high impact problem that we all see coming, but we choose to do little or nothing about it because it's complex or inconvenient or incentive structures favor the status quo the problem with hospitals is is definitely a gray rhino. I mean, you kind of look at these high cost uh, centralized delivery mechanisms that aren't terribly convenient, that don't provide uh, sufficient access, that are unevenly distributed throughout the country. And along with the development of all these alternative delivery models, we could see the industry in the midst of a fairly dramatic transition in terms of facilities and business models and so on. And now COVID comes and uh, I think accelerates that in a big way. And quite honestly, if it weren't for the funding the government is, is providing through the CARES Act, there'd be many hospitals that were, would be out of business today. Let's talk first about the hospital network as it currently exists and some of the fundamental challenges it's, it's confronting as society at large is trying to move to much more of a a value-based, consumer-centric ways of interacting with, with the healthcare delivery? There's a couple things I think that are pretty interesting about this period of time. I think we can look at the hospital sector and say the hospital sector was poorly positioned or struggled with dealing with COVID. I think you kind of have to elevate and look at it sort of from the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a lack of dollars. The payers of healthcare experienced the flip side of what hospitals did. Right. So hospitals had, on average, a sharp drop in utilization and revenue. The payers of healthcare had a sharp drop in utilization and cost of healthcare. So they're they're benefiting by an amount that is comparable to what the hospitals are incurring cost of. What the U.S. government did is poured a ton of money into the healthcare system to fund the hospital sector and the physician sector to a lesser degree. But what hasn't really been addressed is how to take the windfall profit from the payers and spread that around. And so one of my predictions that you'll hear later, Dave, is that's going to be a piece of the equation that is going to get rising attention later in the year. That United Earnings call uh, a week or so ago was breathtaking, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and it's true to varying degrees across the scale. So I think really what we experienced in, in this crisis is not a failure of hospitals, it was really a failure of public health, right? If, if we had the same national outcomes that Germany did, we would have about 800,000 people infected today. 
and we would have had about 36,000 people that died. That's about flu season. And I think it would have been horrible for the families of the 36,000 people who incurred this condition, but it would have been not inconsistent with what happens in a normal year. And so, you know, is part of the solution a more integrated model where the payment and the care delivery get integrated? That is possible. And I think the organizations like Kaiser or like healthcare partners that collect premium dollars experienced far less disruption. How do you pivot to that is really difficult because it's a very different answer in San Francisco than it is in Chicago, than it is in Des Moines, than it is in, you know, Paducah, Kentucky. Right. Right. Carson, what's your take? You know, it becomes pretty interesting what Jim just said. When you look, you know, maybe three to five years down the road and you do the analysis of kind of the total utilization or during this COVID uh, period, right? Because as, as we've talked about, there's been substantial reduction in utilization. Some of it reductions that shouldn't happen because these are necessary procedures, surgeries and so on. What will be interesting to see is how much of the reduced utilization just is sort of just lost in the sense that it never really comes back. And does that, in some sense, support the basic notion of a different uh, form of healthcare uh, payment and reimbursement, right? So if you look at sort of that total value uh, driven model versus the fee for service model in a COVID world, we're sort of almost forced into a value model because we're literally forcing utilization down. Let's switch now because we've made the case that hospitals were already vulnerable before COVID and they're probably more vulnerable now just given the financial impact. And you two are in the M&A business and absent you know, massive government infusion to prop the sector up. I, I think we're going to see increasing industry consolidation. Carson, was the hypothesis true? And if it is true, how is that going to unfold? And what are some of the impacts of that? I would argue that uh, like everything else that we've talked about, COVID to some degree has accelerated what was already a you know consolidation trend. The main impact that we see from COVID is really the negative financial impact on hospitals. Obviously, having a strong balance sheet and and cash flow is the lifeblood of supporting these high infrastructure costs that, and when we think about it in the context of not-for-profit healthcare, you know, there's really only uh, three viable sources of of cash for hospitals, uh, investment, generated cash, uh, cash from operations, and tax-exempt uh, bonds, and those three are, are linked. So when boards are now starting to kind of look at both their financial position and what it takes to kind of work their way up, they face a pretty daunting challenge, right? Because from a not-for-profit perspective, uh, you need to both make investments. Many of those investments basically are cash off, off your balance sheet. So these non, uh, you know, non-facilities-based investments at the same time, uh, to remain strong and viable, you have to build up cash on the balance sheet. So in some sense, you have to almost double up, uh, you know, the cash flow uh, that's necessary to, uh, to remain sustainable. And that's pretty daunting. And we saw this really before COVID. Some of these dynamics, you know, were at play, but we certainly see that, that boards are now evaluating rather partnering up with, you know, stronger organizations where they can get some scale benefits and 
stronger balance sheets. Anecdotally, we are getting you know more calls, I think, than we have in in a number of years. Uh, from organizations that at least want to explore what uh, affiliations kind of look like and what the implications are. But net-net, I think we'll see a, a pretty significant uptick in uh, in hospital, whole hospital m and yeah. Jim, is it a buyer's market? To- well, a couple things, Dave, just to add to what Carson said. One of the things that we have certainly seen in the last three to five years is an increasing presence of antitrust regulators' involvement in transactions. Ten years ago, there was definitely a revenue strategy around consolidation. I think what you're seeing now is consolidation that is motivated more around a balance sheet and a cost structure strategy. Like how do you get to a a more sustainable cost structure and how do you have access to a balance sheet that allows you to assume some of the risk associated with transitioning into value-oriented reimbursement models? And so I think it's likely that we'll have conflict between some of the rules and, and models that are used to measure whether deals are competitive or anti-competitive in contrast to what is actually going to happen when those combinations occur. I think there's going to be more challenges and more conflict with the regulatory infrastructure in, in these transactions. Yeah. Who are the winners and losers? I think the winners are systems that are oriented toward delivering a different value equation in the market. And, and those winners are are going to be facilitated by the adoption of those strategies by the payers, right? It's very hard to be a value-based healthcare system if the payer environment in your market doesn't embrace that approach. So so it's not just the strategy of the health system, but it's how that strategy can be uh, used with respect to the relationships with payers. So I think the payer market will matter a lot. And I think that argues that places where you've got very high market share by single payers are likely to be less innovative market unless those payers are particularly aggressive about pushing and adopting those models. In markets where you've got more a more competitive payer environment, um, I think it's more probable that you'll see greater innovation. And, and Carson, picking up on that, do you see more vertical integration? You know, the payviders, for lack of, I, I hate that term, but <laughs> the idea that organizations will um, both receive money for insurance and then and then you know manage the cost of the care of the people under its under its umbrella. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly, Dave, when you talk about sort of that model, uh, you know, rather a provider, uh, you know, actually forms or builds a health plan or rather they're value-based taking full risk, you know, the dynamic essentially is the same, right? And that's going to be, I think, very diverse. So you can see some markets where the CEO wants to lead on value-based and they will get there and you have other markets where, you know, they will sort of go there kicking and screaming. So I think it's going to be highly variable short of some meaningful uh, policy change on, on a federal level to kind of push further the the value chain. But I think there's no, sort of no ambiguity about rather value-based care is the right model. If you kind of take Kaiser as the poster child, if you will, for successful, fully integrated value-based care, I think the lesson certainly is the, the further along the value uh, journey that you are, uh, the more likely, you know, you are structured to be successful in, in sort of this 
potentially variable world that we live in. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like musical chairs. Carson, you mentioned you've got the volume of incoming calls are, are greater than you've seen in quite a while. It feels like if the market just plays out the way we're describing, that we'll see disproportionate numbers of hospital closures among weaker hospitals, uh, many of them located in rural areas and or inner cities. After we go through this um, next wave of consolidation, the market's going to push resources to where it generates the highest return. That may not necessarily line up with, with the healthcare needs of the country. How do you think about that? Well, I, I think you kind of raised a really critical point with that last statement is, you know, you get what you pay for. And there's two places where that investment generates excess returns um, in the hospital sector and in the payer sector, that those returns can be used to make investments. And that's why we see those two pools of capital being the pools of capital that are doing most of the aggregation. So who are the, going to be the winners? I think the winners actually are going to be health systems that can do two things really well. One is form the right kind of reimbursement relationships with payers. And the second is manage their physician core effectively, whether they're employed by the health system or whether they're in contractual relationships with the health system. Um, and in different markets, different models will be deployed. If you really want to boil it down to who, who's been most negatively impacted by COVID, I think it's mostly smaller physician offices. They experienced a pretty incredible demand shock and they're struggling and they're going to be looking for a different model of ownership and, and care delivery. And the well-positioned hospitals will be able to step in and help solve those problems. Hospitals that haven't developed an infrastructure for working with physicians won't be able to. And I think there'll be, that'll be a really big shift that takes place in the next you know year and a half or so is you're going to see pretty dramatic alignment between hospitals and physicians. It's not going to be proportional, right? Some hospitals are going to get most of that and others won't. So I, I think that'll have a huge impact on, on the sort of care delivery alignment. And then, you know, the hospitals that are able to manage those relationships with physicians to deliver high quality care in an efficient manner will be successful. I think the real challenge is, you know, despite the fact that hospitals have been the net, one of the big accumulators of physicians as this physician aggregation phase has taken place, um, they've been good at aligning with doctors. They have not necessarily been very good at effectively managing their physician core. And that's going to be a critical, fundamental performance metric that, that successful health systems are going to have to be able to achieve. That feels like a good place to land, uh, drawing a distinction on the uh, provider side between the facilities, the hospitals, and the, the physicians. And of course, we've seen in the last couple of weeks the announcement that the Walgreens is um, going to buy a big chunk of Village MD and put major clinics in their stores. Also that Oak Street is going for an initial public offering uh, with a valuation well above a billion dollars. It will be interesting to see how the physician piece of this plays out as more and more of these front end primary care models kind of uh, come into the marketplace. Uh, but before I let you two guys get away, I, I want a bold prediction for what, what's going to happen uh, in healthcare over the next 
say one to two years, uh, something we can hold you accountable for when you come back on the show. So Carson, what, what's your bold prediction? I'll make a prediction, but I think it'll be more than, than two years. I think when you look at, uh, you know, everything that COVID has brought to light in terms of the disparate care based on socioeconomic status, you know, combined with what appears to be a meaningful shift in Washington, D.C., I think within the next year to two, we will have very meaningful discussion around substantive changes in healthcare policy and healthcare reimbursement. And I think a significant reallocation of healthcare resources to underserved communities. Um, I think to ultimately get, you know, sort of the next wave of healthcare reform, which is really what I'm talking about, you know, that's probably a, a three ish year process. But yeah. I think we are, uh, you know, we are poised uh, for, you know, meaningful change to, uh, to healthcare delivery. I think really. Uh, highlighted and accentuated by uh, by COVID. Jim, uh, what's uh, what's your prediction? So uh, my prediction is we're going to see a pretty dramatic shift uh, in the dialogue between are markets the right solution or is the government the right solution? And I think that shift is going to be more toward looking to the government. One of the takeaways from what this most recent experience is is that you know the everybody turned to Washington DC when they had trouble and Washington DC threw tons of money out the door to try to solve the problem i think that's indicative of um, the ability for for the markets to solve the problem versus government intervention and as a very sort of uh, free market oriented sort of economic thinker that's not necessarily the answer i think it would be the optimal answer but I think in practicality, that's what we're going to experience. Depending on what the outcome of the election is, that could happen in a more you know, accelerated pace. But I think the truth is we're on a very kind of deliberate move toward a much bigger role for the government in our healthcare reimbursement models. I think that'll be one of the, one of the big takeaways from this, this experience. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, Jim. And to some extent, shame on the industry if it can't develop uh, enough value-based response. I mean, we've been at value-based care now for 10 years, and the results have been pretty anemic up to this point. And I think consumers are losing confidence in the health system's ability to deliver on the promise of better, faster, cheaper care everywhere. If that happens, we will probably get more governmental health care, and that could lead to things that the industry won't like, price controls, rationing, that type of thing, mandates. Well, as not uh, unexpected and absolutely fascinating um, discussion. And so here we are at the end of this talking about uh, the post-COVID hospital environment and the, how the market will work its magic to, to rationalize excess facilities and reallocate resources to uh, higher performing businesses. And the probability that as that happens, we'll have massive gaps in the care delivery system, which will get us to the next part of this discussion is what are the public policy challenges, Jim, as you were relating to creating a vibrant healthcare delivery sector that, that truly meets the, the needs of the American people. So. Uh, Thank you both. Take a look for the article, which will be coming out a little later this month. Then the next month's article on the second part on policy solutions. In the meantime, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and 
keep doing what you're doing to make our healthcare system uh, kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. 